Okay, so we've been doing a series on Choose Joy, and today I want to talk to you about something that I believe sparks our joy, and that's purpose. I believe that purpose sparks joy. For all the organizational fundies in here, you'll know where I got that from. My good friend, Marie Kondo. Okay, so a key verse that, that's been, that we've been hearing a lot through this um, series has been John 10.10. 10 where it says a thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I come to give you life and life in abundance. And I want to read it this morning from the, the Passion Translation. And it says this, But I have come to give you everything in abundance, more than you can expect, life in its fullness until you overflow. And I love this version just because of that ending, until you overflow. I believe that God wants to give us a life of abundance. He wants us to live a life that's full. He wants us to have marriages that are intimate and blessed. He wants us to have families and relationships with our children that are blessed and full. He wants us to have a, a job, work that's fulfilling, that's adding value. But He doesn't want us to have it just for ourselves. He wants us to overflow. He wants to fill us with joy and goodness so that we overflow to the world around us. And so Sue touched on this when, um, when she did her message and, and she, she took joy as an acronym. And she said, there's, a, there's a, divine perp- a divine order in joy. It's J first, then O, then Y. J meaning Jesus. So Jesus is first. O for others, then it's others. And then Y, yourself. So there's a divine order. We can't put the why first, we can't, when we focused only on ourselves and looking inwardly, I don't feel like we experience the joy that God has for us. But when we, when we put it in order, when we put our lives in the right order and Jesus is first, then ourselves, or then others, and then ourselves, I believe everything else, the Bible says everything else is added to us when we put his kingdom first and seek his righteousness. So I believe the process to experiencing true joy and fullness of life is in the order. God's promises, his dreams, his blessings, they're never about us. They're always about him and his purposes, and they're always for others. And I believe that when we are living a life of purpose, when we are able to take our eyes off of ourselves and see what God sees in the world, and when we allow him to put his dreams in our heart, then we will start living the full life that God has planned for us. And in Ephesians 2 verse 10, It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were created by God, for God, and when he created us, he created us for good works that he's already um, predestined for us, and so that we will walk in them. So God's created us to do something. God created you for a purpose. There is a reason he made you the way that you are. He fitted you with gifts, with abilities, your personality, your likes, your dislikes. And it's all for a reason. He put them together for a purpose. And because you were created to do something specific, I don't think that we will ever truly be satisfied or feel full or complete until we're actually working in what God has organized for us to do, who he made us, the way he made us, what he put us together for, it's for a reason. And we need to find out what that reason is, what that purpose is, and walk in it. And when we're, 
when we're functioning the way he wants us, when we're accomplishing what he's wanting us to do, what he created, the very reason he created us, I feel like then we will be walking in the joy and the fullness of life that God has for us. So your joy and your purpose are connected because purpose sparks joy. Okay, so today I want to take a look at a man in the Bible who I think can inspire us um, to live a life of purpose. And his name is Nehemiah. Trying to work out this time. Wow, okay. That was four minutes too long. Okay, so So Nehemiah... Okay, so the, the Jewish people at this time had been exiled to Babylon and um, Jerusalem was a mess and all the people had, had been taken captive and they were forced to work in Babylon and they were slaves. And, but by the time, in the time of Nehemiah, people had already started, some Jewish people had already started going back to Jerusalem. Ezra had been there, they had rebuilt the temple and so, some people thought that it was going well there. So, but Nehemiah was still in Babylon and he was actually a cupbearer to the king. And in those days, the cupbearer was somebody who had to be very trustworthy and loyal because a lot of times the um, kings would be assassinated through somebody putting some poison in their drink. And so the cupbearer's position was an important one because he would serve the king his, his drink. Um, and he would sometimes have to test it to make sure that there wasn't anything dodgy, you know, great job. Um, but he, um, he would have been, it tells, this tells us a lot about Nehemiah's um, character because he must have been loyal, he must have been trustworthy, he must have been a man of character because he was a slave, somebody who was a captive and he worked his way into a position of the officer of the court where he was cl- cl- in close contact to the king. And so Nehemiah, um, the, the book of Nehemiah opens with him getting some visitors that had just come from Jerusalem or Judah. And he asked them, how's things going back home? How's the country? You know, how's, how's our nation doing? And, and they, they say, no, it's, it's, it's not good. Like the walls are broken down. The gates have been burnt down and the city is in danger because the city walls are what protected the city. And so if a city doesn't have walls, they're, they're in danger. They, anybody can attack them. And so the people were, were down. The people were in danger and the city was in trouble. And I want to read from chapter 1, verse 4. This is, this is Nehemiah's response to the news. He says, When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And now when I read this, I was personally very challenged because I thought, I've got a news about my country this year. News that wasn't good. I get emotional every time I talk about it, sorry. Our children and our women are in danger. And we've been told this news and I was challenged that that wasn't my response. My response is maybe one of fear one of, okay, we need to get our gates up at home so we can protect, so I can protect my children. But Nehemiah's response challenged me. He heard the news that not, not his brothers and sisters or his, his wife and his children. No, they would have been with him. His nation, people that he didn't personally know, but it was God's people. He had this conviction that God's people were in trouble and it broke him. And he allowed it to, to, to sit in his heart for a few days as he prayed and he mourned and he talked to God about his nation. And so one day when Nehemiah was serving the king his wine, he, um, I believe up until this point, Nehemiah was choosing joy. 
in his life. And he just couldn't anymore at this point. He couldn't hide the sadness that he felt in his heart. And in those days, as an officer of the court, it was important to have a good demeanor about yourself. Because if you looked upset or if you looked like you were troubled, they would assume that you were plotting to kill the king. So your face, everything was important. So he had to choose joy every day at his job. But on this day, he just couldn't hide it. And so the king says to him, what's wrong? Why do you look so sad? You don't look sick to me, so something must be troubling you. And Nehemiah is afraid because he thinks, are they going to think that I'm trying to kill the king? They're going to kill me. And he sa- but he, he speaks out in confidence and he says, how can I not be sad? Like my nation's in trouble. The walls are broken and the, 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 the people are in trouble. And the king surprisingly says to him, well, how can I help you? And this again shows us of Nehemiah's character. He must have been diligent. He must have been a good worker, a good man that the king offered help. And he said to him, how can we help? And so Nehemiah, with confidence, says, I need time off work, please. I want to go and I want to help my city. I want to rebuild the walls. Um, so they ask him how much time you need. And then Nehemiah also asks for a letter of safety so that he can get through the, the surrounding um, city safely. And then he also asks him for the supplies to build the wall. He says, can I, can I have a letter so I can get timber and get what I need to build the wall? And the king gives him everything that he asks for. And even over and above that, he sends army men and horsemen with Nehemiah to keep him safe. So it just shows us, guys, when you're diligent at work, God's favor is on your life. And so Nehemiah ends up going to Jerusalem, and then we pick up in chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. It says, I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah had felt the burden, and he had let it settle in his heart to a point where God had actually placed a dream in his heart. God put plans, not, not Nehemiah's plans, not for Nehemiah. He had put a dream for Nehemiah's nation, for God's nation in Nehemiah's heart. And so Nehemiah gathered a grunge, a, a grunge, a bunch of people um, together, groups of people, and he shared his, his heart with them. He shared the dreams. He told them about his conversation with the king and said, I've got all this stuff. Won't you build this wall with me? And they all agreed. And so they started building the wall. And it wasn't easy. Like even though it was God's dream, it wasn't easy. There were, there were a lot of people that didn't want this nation because Israel was a mighty strong nation before and they didn't want this nation to be a mighty nation again. And so they, there was a lot of um, fighting. There was war happening. There was, so in the end, Nehemiah and the guys building ended up having to build the wall with a sword in one hand and whatever tool in the other hand. So they were, and they were building day and night. So it was hard. It wasn't easy. But the Bible says that they worked with enthusiasm. So they had joy in their work, even though it wasn't hard. Why? Because they had a purpose. Because they were doing it not for themselves, but they had more. They were, they were working towards something in their lives. God gave him a dream and a vision for his nation. And then in chapter 6, verse 15, it says, So on, this, on October 2nd, the war was finished, just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. Can I just tell you, 52 days to build a wall around a nation. We are trying to build our gate at home. Okay? Now we've... 
given a lot of money and we have nothing. And it's been 42 days and literally the rubble has been removed. So the little gate, the little fence that was there has been taken away and some of the plants cut down. Nothing else, 42 days. So Nehemiah built a wall around a nation, around a city in 52 days. That's a miracle. And so when the war was finished, Nehemiah and Ezra gathered all the people and they held a church service and they took out the scriptures and they read the scriptures to the people. And the Bible tells us that a whole nation ended up recommitting their lives to God. And they they cried and they wept and they repented before God. But then in chapter 8, verse 10, Nehemiah says this to them. Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with the people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before the Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if we go to chapter 8, verse 17, it says, So everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. And Joshua was the person who led them into the promised land. So when they finally, after 40 years of being in the desert, entered, that's the kind of joy that they had, the same joy now when Israel recommitted their lives to God. Um, And then at a later stage, once they'd finished the ceremonies, they actually held another ceremony to dedicate the wall and the city to, um, to God. And I I loved reading about it because it just sounded like so much fun. Nehemiah had all these choirs and they got all the the Levites and the priests and everyone there. And they had musical instruments. And he actually sent one choir this way on the wall and another choir that way. And they were just singing praises to God. And then as they met in the middle, they had the ceremony of um, sacrifices. And in chapter 12, verse 43, it says, Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day, for God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and the children also participated in the celebration and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard from far away. So God used Nehemiah to restore joy to an entire nation by bringing them around a purpose. And so I believe that purpose sparks joy. And so today I have just two takeaways that I want to take away from the story that I believe can help us to pursue purpose in our lives so that we can also walk in the joy that God has for us. So my first point today is allow God to write your story. God's influence in your story is up to how much you give him authorship. I'll say that again. God's influence in your story, in your life, the amount of influence that he has is up to how much you give him authorship in your life. God has written our story. He has a narrative for our lives, but we, we get to choose. God is not a controlling God. He doesn't want to control us. He's, we're not his puppets. He loves us enough to give us freedom of choice. He wants us to be free. And so it's like those stories. I don't know if you used to read those stories when you were a kid or if you read it to your children, where they get to choose in the story. So it gets to a point where there's a crossroads. And then if you choose this, you go to this page. Or if you make this choice, you go to that page. And the story's ending can change. And so recently I once went with Rizal to, uh, um, to the theater. And, we, and there was a play that they did where the audience got these... Um, 
things that either said yes or no, something like that, or A or B or something, or different colors. I can't remember. It's not important. But, um, <laughs> sorry. At, some po- at, at different points in the play, they asked the audience, like, okay, so how, which choice is he going to make? If you think he should make this choice, put up your, your thing. If you think he should make this choice, then put up the other one. And then the majority vote would win, and that's the way the narrative would continue. And so you could go watch this play a few times and the ending would always be different. So I think it was a money-making thing. They just wanted people to come back. But anyway, (laughs) it's clever. Um, But our lives are like those stories, okay? God has a story. He has the best story, but we choose. And at different points in our lives, the choices we make will change the narrative of our lives, We live in a culture where there is a dis- disconnect between our spiritual lives and our lives. Okay, we, our culture compartmentalizes everything. So we have, um, we have our spiritual box over here, and in it is maybe our quiet time and our Sunday mornings. And then over here, we've got our work box, and that's what I do for money, and that's what I do during the day. And then over here, we have maybe our family box and our social life box. And in the end, God ends up being a time slot allocated in our lives instead of being the author of our story. And so today I want to argue that 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 wasn't what Nehemiah's life looked like. The Hebrew people were never disconnected to God ever. Life, everything was spiritual. Whether they were washing their clothes, whether they were at work, whether they were at home having dinner, everything to them was spiritual. And we see this if we look in Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, if you look at the laws, there are literally laws for everything, like everything. It's not laws about how to do church or how to do your quiet times. It's laws about how to do your washing, like about work, how you should work, how you shouldn't work, about raising your children. There's laws about their entire lives because everything was spiritual, They were God's people. That's who they were. And how they lived that out was every part of their lives. But for us, we're God's people on a Sunday. But the rest of our lives, it's our thing. Like our work is our thing. And we allow God into parts of our lives. And I want to challenge you today that God wants to be the author of your entire story. He has a plan and a purpose for every single part of your life, not just your spiritual life. And do you know that the word spiritual doesn't even exist in the Hebrew language? It doesn't exist because they didn't need it because there was nothing spiritual. Everything was spiritual. <laughs> so, so I think we need to get to that place where we have no idea where I am on my notes, where we are actually allowing God to write our whole story. And I think when we see purpose in what we are doing and when you allow God to show you why you are where you are, then we will approach our lives differently. When we see purpose in our marriage, where it's not just a partner to do life with. Actually, God has a purpose in your marriage. He wants you to encourage each other, to build into each other. He put you together for a reason so that you can grow his kingdom together, so that you can push each other closer to God. And when we see a purpose in that, I believe we approach our marriages differently. When we see purpose in our children, when we see our children as God's people that he's entrusted us with, that we can input into, where we can help them to understand who he is and and we can raise them in a way that they will change the world one day, then suddenly we're approaching that very differently. And when we see purpose in our varsity or or schoolwork, 
where it's not just, well, every child has to go to school. No, God has you there for a purpose. When we can see that our purpose is connected to people, always. And when you're at school, there's people. When you're at work, there's people. When you're in the shops, there's people. And so God has something that he wants to use you in with people. So there's a purpose in everything. Um, I like this quote from Tim Keller, if I can find it here. It says, Work is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular flourish. So imagine if we could approach work in that way or approach school in that way where we're like we're taking the raw materials of what this world is and we're actually going to put it together in a way that's going to help the world flourish and it's going to help people flourish so what does this look like every day this is a great idea but what does it look like in our day-to-day life and I believe Colossians 3 23 to 24 answers that it says whatever you do Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So everything we do is in and through God, and it's for God. And so when you're at work and you're serving an ungodly boss, like you're not working for him, you're working for God. And Nehemiah got this, knew this. Because he was a Hebrew, and so he knew that his life, everything was about God, and that his purpose was wrapped up in everything. And so he didn't serve a Christian, God, a Christian boss. He, didn't, he wasn't a pastor at a church that like, got this vision from God. He was a regular guy working in what we would call a secular job with an ungodly boss, and yet he allowed God to write his story. He allowed God to, he, he was worked diligently, first of all, He worked as if he was working for God. And in the end, God could use that to save a whole nation and to restore joy in a whole nation because he was diligent and he worked as if he was working for God. So let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you felt alive? When was the last time that you you did something where you felt, man, I was just made for this? And... In my life personally, I feel like that when I'm teaching. I don't feel like that when I'm preparing. (laughs) I feel like, definitely not. I'm like, why, Jesus? But I feel like that when I'm teaching. I do. I feel like I come alive. When I was at Kids Church teaching, even when I stand up here, I feel like, I love, the, I love being able to unwrap scripture for people. I love being able to see those light bulb moments going on. It, it makes me feel alive. And I believe it's because God created me and gave me a gift of teaching. And when I use the gift he gave me, I feel joy. But I felt that joy also when I used to teach swimming. And so I was a swimming instructor. And I remember this once. I was teaching a granny, one of the grandparents of my kids. So she would come every, every week and bring her grandchild. And she would always say, oh, I never learned to swim. I never. And I was like, come, I'll teach you. And she did. And she came. And I taught the 60-year-old woman who had been frightened of water her entire life. And the, I remember so clearly the day she learned to float. And she, like, she finally relaxed. And she let go. And her body floated in the water. And she was so excited. And, and I felt alive. I felt like, wow, I got to be a part of that. And why? Because God has given me a gift of teaching. And when I use my gifts, I feel joy. Because I'm, I'm walking in the purposes that God created me. 
Another time I felt alive, and this might be weird for some of you, is when I'm waitressing. <laughs> so I used to waitress Jason with Jason, and I loved it. I mean, not always, okay, not always, but I enjoyed waitressing. It actually brought joy to me, and I realize now, looking back, that it's actually because God has given me a gift of hospitality. And so when I'm serving, and I'm I feel joy because I'm walking in what God created me to do. And now I don't waitress anymore, but I still use that gift. We host life group at our house, and I love it. I host great birthday parties for my kids, and I love it. I feel alive. And even when we're, when we're having meetings at our house, we're having people over for dinner, or when I'm here on a Sunday and I'm hosting families and, and um, children at Kids Church, I feel alive. I feel like, man, I was made for this. Why? Because God gave me a gift of hospitality. And when you use the gifts and the abilities that God has wired you for, your life will be filled with joy. So allow God to write your story. Think about what he, how he created you and, and make choices according to how he wants you to live. And then that brings me to the second point, And that is stop living on autopilot. And start living on purpose. You were created for more than a production line. Every day doing the same thing. Step out of the rat race. Slow down. Allow God to speak to you so that you can live a life of purpose. And Jason spoke about it last week. You can't live a life on purpose, of purpose in a hurry. You need to slow down. Nehemiah took time. He, he got the news, it broke him. He says he spent days fasting and praying, spending time in God's presence. And that's where the dream developed. And that's where this, this vision for his nation came from. And he ended up saving a whole nation, restoring joy to a whole nation, because he slowed down enough to allow God to put his dream, his dreams in his heart. And so I believe a way, one, the first way that we can stop living on purpose, stop living on autopilot and start living on purpose is to spend time with God. Nehemiah was moved. You need to be connected to God in order to be moved. It caused him to look outside of himself. But how we spend time with God matters. Do we come to God with our shopping list and say, okay, God, I'd like you to bless this. I'd like a bigger house. I'd like this. I'd like that. And just protect my children and help them to have a good day. Amen. And then we leave. God's, God, you're not giving God space. We serve a God that wants to talk to you. Every single one of you sitting here, God wants to talk to you. And Chris Hodges says, God doesn't have a talking problem. We have a listening problem. So if we would just slow down enough Quieten, quieten the rest of the noise enough to actually spend time in God's presence and listen to what he has to say. I believe that God will show you great things. Um, if you read in Jeremiah 33 verse 3, God is speaking to Jeremiah and he says, Ask me and I will tell you remarkable secrets you do not know about things to come. And I believe God says that to us today still. If you just listen to me, ask me, and I'll show you great and wonderful things. I'll show you the answer for your nation. I'll show you the answer for your family. I'll show you the answer for your workspace, for your colleagues. Just sit down and ask me, and I'm going to show you how I'm going to use you to change a nation. 
And I, at my, in my bathroom, I have a, a few scriptures up at home. And one of them is Psalm 34, verse 5. And I've got it in the, the Passion Translation. And it says, Gaze upon him, join your life with his, and joy will come. And I like having it there in the mornings because we go in there every morning. And it's just a reminder to me, like, it's, this is God's, God's day. It's his life. And if I just align my life with his, if I spend enough time to gaze, not quickly look, I spend enough time to gaze into God and align my life with his, then joy will come and I will live a life of purpose. So if you want to experience joy, and life of overflowing, then slow down enough to hear God speak to you. Get in his presence and allow him to break your heart for what breaks his. And then the second way I believe that we can stop living on autopilot and start living on purpose is to start praying for others. Pray changes our hearts. Love is something that needs to be cultivated. It doesn't just happen. So when we get in God's presence and when we're actually praying for people, something starts to change. Our love for people starts to change. Maybe some of you need to start praying for your bosses at work or for those family members that you don't want to pray for. Okay, something shifts when we start praying for somebody else. And I also think that we can see a lot from our prayer life. We can see what we care about, who we care about, or what we care about. If you look back and think back to the last month, like who or what have you been praying about the most? Are our prayers all inward focused? God, give me this. God, I need this. God, I need you to do this. God, please change this. Change that person. Or are our prayers about others? Our prayers about our nation. When last have we prayed and asked God to do something? Ask God to, to heal people. When last have we prayed for our government? I believe that we can live a life of purpose and we can, we can slow down when we actually spend time praying for people. And just a side note that I want to mention, I'll mention it tonight especially, but I think you can also tell a lot about where your heart is or who you care about most when you look at your Instagram feed. I think if, so, if other people are scrolling through your Instagram feed, what are they seeing all the time? And I, I really believe that I want to challenge you this morning to take your lens, the lenses off yourself, turn them and put them onto other people and onto the world. And I think you will be amazed at how much you see and how much God opens up to you when you're looking beyond yourself. And then the third way that I believe we can stop living on autopilot and start living on purpose is to look for an opportunity to add value to somebody else's life every day. This is how we look beyond ourselves and our love for people will grow. Test this. Take your eyes off of yourself this week and just for a week, find an opportunity. Look for an opportunity every single day to add value to somebody else's life. I was driving home the other day and this old lady was trying to get across the road and I could see she wasn't sure because it's there by the Bayside robots and it's, you know, I could see she wasn't quite sure. She's like looking like, is there a bus coming? Am I going to get hit? Like she wasn't sure how to get across. And then this man turned back, went back, grabbed her by the arm, like was smiling to her and like just helped her walk across the road. And I thought, Wow, that's so, like it brought me joy to see that. How much more joy must it have brought him to actually do that for somebody? And it's such a simple thing. But when we're so rushed and we're so busy and so focused on ourselves, we don't see that old lady. We just 
on our own mission. And so I want to challenge you this week to lift your eyes up, to notice people around you, and to be intentional about adding value in whichever way, whether it's a cashier, somebody cashier, somebody at the petrol station, whether it's maybe it's your husband or wife, maybe it's your sister, your siblings, somewhere where you can take your eyes off of your own situation for a little bit and add value to somebody else's life. But and then by looking for opportunities to add value, you're actually choosing joy. Because if purpose sparks joy, then by choosing to live and walk in purpose, you're actually choosing joy. And then the last way that I believe we can stop living on autopilot and start living on purpose is, to, if you haven't yet or you're new to the church, is to sign up for Growth Track. We have, um, yeah, we've, we've got a course that we do um, every month. There's three steps, and it's just a way to help you to see what, why you were created. So we do gift assessments and personality assessments, and, and we talk about the, the purpose of the church and why the church is here, and I think it'll just help you. So if you're not connected to this church, I want to encourage you to do that as your first step. Sign up. There's um, connect cards under your seat or on your seat, and you can just tick growth track. But make sure you put your name and your number down, please, so that we can contact you. But that's just a great way to get connected to the church so that we can help you discover why you were created, what your purpose is, and so that you, we can get you connected into your next step. And I want to just wrap up today with a quick personal story. I, there was a season, yes, the band can come up, please. The whole band, Jermaine. <laughs> no, I mean Jermaine. <laughs> um, he is the band, I'm joking. <laughs> joking. Anyway, um, I want to wrap up today with a story of my life because there was, there was a season where I wrote my own story, where I decided that I knew everything. I was 18 years old and I knew what life was about. And so I had just turned 18, and I left home. I flew to America all by myself to write my own story. And I had a great life there. I lived in America for two years. I made loads of money. I, I mean, I was coming from a place where we didn't have money as a kid. Like, we lived in a, in a caravan park for a few years. There were times that we didn't even have food. And so now I was like, I'm taking my hands, my life into my own hands. And I was working like three different jobs there. So I had, I didn't have, there was no limits in there. I had friends. I was staying in a house with loads of people. I had great friends. Everybody was there from different countries. Everyone was there just to have a party. So we had loads of fun. We traveled all over America. I went on trips to Hawaii where we got to swim with um, those giant turtles. It was amazing. I went, we used to go through to Reno, which is like a little Vegas, at least once a month. And um, I remember being upgraded to the penthouse suites, the ones where we literally had the whole top layer of this. Like, it was amazing. Like, I lived a rock star life, seriously. <laughs> it was awesome. But I remember so clearly this one night, all my friends were, it was in between seasons, so people would come for like three, four months at a time and then they would leave. And so this group that had been there was leaving. And so they all went to Vegas as their last kind of like travel before they headed home. But I obviously was staying, so I had to work, so I couldn't go with. And I was all alone in this house. And I, was, I remember exactly where I was sitting, had a bottle of Southern Comfort in the one hand. And I won't tell you what I had in the other hand. But I remember sitting there and thinking... Like I actually said this out loud. I was like, this is pathetic. 
Like I can't even be alone with myself for one night without having to do something. I didn't, there was, there was nothing. I realized that there was a lack of joy in my life. There was a lack of purpose in my life. And I was loving the moments where those moments were great. And when I got to have those adventures, but those moments only last so long and eventually you're by yourself again and you have to deal with who you are. And I remember phoning my brother that night in tears. I mean, I don't even know what time it was in South Africa. And I just phoned him I'm like, Jeffrey, I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. And I was just, I had this revelation that like, this life is not, like I thought this is what I wanted. I had everything I wanted, but it wasn't enough. And so that night, I prayed to God and I said, okay, God, I realize life was better with you, but I don't want to serve you just because my parents tell me to. Because obviously I was a teenager. So I was like, I don't, I, I need to know for myself. Like, I need to know that you are real. And I don't, I don't know what happened after that. It was maybe a few weeks and I was waitressing. And I remember so clearly this lady came to me afterwards and she gave me this like ridiculous tip. And she was like, I know this might sound weird, but I really feel like God wants you to know that He loves you and that He's real. And I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> My God. And from that day on, honestly, I've never looked back. I'm like, God, I don't want to write my own story. I've been there. I've done that. It's empty. There's no joy in that. I want to live a life of purpose. I want to live a life that is connected to your life, where even when things are hard, because my life hasn't been perfect, but my life has been full, full. It's filled with His joy. It's filled with great people. It's filled with purpose. And so today, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus or you're not sure if you believe that He's real, I want to challenge you to ask Him. 